marked not by doctrine, but by their morality, their conduct, and their teaching about morality. They were denying the master that bought them by promoting sexual license. Instead of submitting to Christ's way of sexual purity, these false teachers despised authority, and they taught that by grace we're free, free to do whatever we want in our bodies, just to whatever we please. They would say that the more we rise above the limitations of the law, the more we magnify the grace of God. They understood the first part of Romans 6, uh, verse 1, that says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? And they left it lay right there. They wanted grace to abound, and therefore they participated in immoral activities. Peter warns in verse 10 that God will hold these people under punishment unto the day of judgment. Heaven and hell are at stake here. And whether we rely on Christ for our hope and obedience to His Word or whether we deny Him and walk in disobedience. And so today we're going to look at the rest of chapter 2 and we're going to see some lessons there for us. And we'll uh, go from verse uh, 10 or 11 through the end of the chapter. And we're going to break it up into four sections. So follow along. I want to read uh, beginning in verse 11. He speaks of angels. Verse 11, chapter 2, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practice and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great uh, swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the, one who have, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption." For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them in the than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray. Father, you've given us instruction, and I pray that we would be diligent in learning from it and adhering to it. Give us wisdom, we pray, as we look into these verses in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we get into this passage, we're going to find in the first section boastful and reviling 
people. These are the false prophets and his description of them. And what we see here is a very brazen willfulness, a pride and self-sufficiency of these false teachers. The Revised Standard Version says they are bold and willful. They're not afraid to revile the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. But these, the, the false prophets, the false teachers, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters which they are ignorant. And yet they will be destroyed in the same destruction with them, suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. There's a couple of understandings here of this term glorious ones, and it's possible that uh, what they are mentioned of here in verse 10 are the fallen angels of verse 4. And that Peter is saying that the false teachers are so brazen, they're so cocky and self-assured that they revile the evil spirits uh, as though they were safe from judgment and supernatural influence of them. Uh, many would hold to that position, that they show such arrogance and such an attitude of false security that Peter is saying even the good angels who, unlike the false teachers, are stronger than the evil one, Nevertheless, do not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment, but they humble themselves and leave judgment to God. And it's understandable for that. But I think that it's unlikely that Peter would use that phrase, glorious ones, to refer to fallen angels. Literally, the term is glories. And it was used back in 1 Peter 1 verse 11 to refer to the glories that surround Christ and His exaltation and His second coming. In 2 Peter, the word glory is associated with the future of Christ and His second coming. Uh, it, it refers back to His transfiguration as a foreshadow of the glory that will be revealed when He comes. And so 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, we find... The false teachers are pictured as mocking this glorious second coming. So I'm inclined to think that this word glories, which the false teachers revile, are the glories of God in Christ, especially as associated with His second coming. So when it says in verse 11 that the angels, and notice he doesn't say good angels, since there is probably no contrast with good or bad in view here, he says, the angels, though they are greater in might and power, they do not pronounce a reviling judgment on them before the Lord. And it probably means that the, the angels don't revile the false teachers, even though they deserve it, and the angels are in an exalted position of power and authority where they could give it, but they are humbled. They're submissive to, to God. They yield to His authority to pass judgment. It's a good lesson for us, isn't it? When we're wronged, yield to the authority and the power and the timing of God to bring about a resolution. But the false teachers despise authority. They rise above the angels. They scorn the glories of the holy God, probably denying His return, His second coming. Now, verse 12 adds that the false teachers are like animals. Now, how is it that they're like animals? Well, two senses. The first is that they are utterly ignorant of what they speak. They're, they're reviling at the glories of Christ is like a wolf howling at, the, at the, the moon. And then secondly, it says that they're going to be destroyed. They're ignorant of what they speak, and they're going to be destroyed just like 
other animals. There will come an end, and that end will be judgment, and their howling will be silenced. And we're admonished here to beware of spiritual pride. Don't achieve a, a, a measure of knowledge and think, well, look at me, I've got something special. Paul says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are completely and utterly dependent on Him, the grace of God. And so we can't boast in ourself and our self-sufficiency. The second section that we come to talks about carousing and greedy, more character of the false dece deceivers. They count it pleasure to revile in the daytime, it speaks of. And the focus is on their unashamed indulgence in immorality and their greed, their love for money. It says they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. It's an important phrase there. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam and, and, and so forth. So we have a brazen, willful, arrogant disobedience here. This is the nature of these false teachers. And they are doing in the daytime, as verse 13 says, what other sinners only do at night under cover of darkness. The, the little term here, carousing with you, in verse 13 literally means they are eating feasts with you. It's as if you go to the, to the all-church banquet and everybody's having a great time and then these people walk in and they bring a blot, they bring a blemish. Their eyes are full of adultery, verse 14. It's interesting as you compare that with chapter 3, verse 14, that tells us to be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless. And yet they walk into the feast and they are a blemish on the fellowship of the redeemed. It's as if they can't even look on a woman without thinking immoral thoughts. It says their hearts are well trained in greed. And they come in and they isolate young believers, new believers, those that are weak in the faith, not yet mature. And they draw them away into a licentious lifestyle, a lifestyle that's riddled with immorality under the guise of a license. Peter doesn't say how they do that. He doesn't say how they aim to make their money with their greed, but he uses the analogy of Balaam, and I think gives us a clue there. Because when the Israelites were approaching the land of Moab, Balak the king, he was afraid of Israel, and he sent for a prophet to come and curse the Israelites so that he might be safe. And you can read about that in Numbers 22. And, and this is what Peter, Peter zeroes in on in verse 15. Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. Specifically, gain from someone willing to pay for his prophetic services. Probably then the false teachers were not only luring young converts away into immoral license, but they were charging for their special instruction, their special teaching. Come to my seminar and I will show you how you can live free in Christ. And here's the price. Come pay the ticket and I will give you the true Word of God. You see, if you pay for instruction, you'll take it much more seriously, won't you? And so they take these 
unstable new believers. They draw them away and they charge them for their services. Notice who the false teachers go after. In verse 14, it talks about unsteady souls. In, in verse 18, it says they entice people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. In other words, new converts, people who are unstable in their understanding of truth as of yet. There's some strong admonition here for us. Here's some teaching that, that we need to understand and get a hold of. Number one is this, establish your own doctrinal stability in the Word. Establish your doctrinal stability in the Word. Get a good <laughs> doctrinal study book and learn the basic doctrines. It's important for you to know what Scripture really teaches. And then secondly, we need to ground our children. We need to ground new converts quickly in the Scriptures. We need to be a church where we are constantly helping one another to send our roots down deep into the rocks of God's truth. And that's why I think our Sunday school classes are so important. Midweek Bible studies are so important that we get together around the truth of God's Word and we establish our doctrinal accuracy so that when the error comes, the false teachers come, we acknowledge them, we recognize them right away, and we call out the error. Doctrine is important because doctrine separates truth from error. Now, the third section in verse 17, just one verse, it speaks of waterless springs and mists. The emptiness of their teaching here is exposed. It says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the, the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. Imagine yourself out in a desert, and you're, you're very thirsty. You're parched. You're, you're so hot and so miserable, you, you don't even have sweat because you've been there so long. You're just completely dried out. And you long for water. You need something to satisfy your thirst. And off in the distance, you see an oasis. You see the trees. You see the green. And so you take every effort to get there. And then you collapse down next to the stream to find that it is dry. There's nothing there. It was an oasis, a mirage. And that's what he says this is. They're teaching. It's the promise of rain for the land. But that promise of rain is just blown away with the weather, the storm. There's a need for discernment between the waterless springs and the springs of living water. One bubbles up into eternal life. The other just leads to gloom where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we need to be discerning to what is real and what is not. And we only do that as we spend time in God's words, time in communion, drawing close to Him. As we get into verse 18, we find the fourth section, and we find that these false teachers distort the gospel of freedom. This is important for us to understand. Uh, 
this is very straightforward warning to the church about being drawn away in false teachings, specifically in this area. Peter warns how they entice particularly new believers, people not grounded in truth, and he leads them off into moral sins, apostasy, abhorrent teaching. And he says their last condition is worse than if they'd never known the way in the beginning. Verse 18, he says, They loud, utter loud boasts of folly. They entice with licentious passions of the flesh, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And he goes on and gives some graphic illustrations of the dogs and the pigs there. The way the false teachers entice new unstable converts is they promise them freedom. They promise freedom. Uh, according to verse 19, and I think it's possible to get a pretty good idea how they argued that. In verse 16, Peter says, live as free men. 1 Peter 2.16, live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as slaves to God. There is no real freedom, is there? You choose to be a slave to sin and corruption, or you choose to be a bondservant of Christ. And there are consequences that are inherent with both. If you choose to be a slave to your sin, it will end in your damnation. If you choose to be a bondservant of Christ, it ends in your fellowship with Him for all eternity. The false teachers were right to promise people freedom. I mean, the call to freedom is very much a New Testament concept. It's at the very heart of the New Testament. But they were not calling you to true freedom. The New Testament freedom is not a call to be free to reign in to your, uh, free to, to, to walk in your passions because then you become a slave of corruption, as verse 19 says. There is an apostolic call to freedom. And this is taught by the apostles, the writers of Scripture. And what they say, number one, is that Christ has died to free us from the guilt and the power of sin. In fact, Paul tells us, if you've been called to freedom, why do you walk back in this in your former conduct? Don't go there, he says. Christ died to free us from that, from the guilt and from the power of sin. So you are not obligated to follow it any longer. Secondly, apostolic freedom teaches us that we are made free from the law in the sense that we no longer strive to keep the law in our own strength. We're not obligated to that. And as you know, because you're well-grounded, I'm sure, most of you, that we cannot keep the law. And the law was given to us to show us that we couldn't keep the law, but that we were, in fact, dependent upon Christ. And so, number three, we are given new heart by the Holy Spirit. And that heart gives us a new desire, and we now delight in holiness because our ultimate desire is to please God, to follow after Him, 
to glorify him. Everywhere the gospel of freedom was preached, there, there were false preachers, false teachers that were distorting that. In 2 Peter 3.16, if I can jump ahead a chapter, it shows that the writing of the Apostle Paul, I'll call it a sitting duck for this distortion. It says there are some things in them, speaking of Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Yes, the teaching of Paul can be difficult, but if you don't spend the time in the effort to, to become knowledgeable about what he is saying, you'll distort it, and that will lead to your destruction. That's what Peter's saying. The false teachers take the unstable, and they teach how to use the letters of Paul to justify their own views of immorality. Paul knew that his teaching about freedom was open to being abused in this way, and he warned against it. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. We talked about that principle in Sunday school briefly this morning. If you're going to take something away, you've got to replace it, right? So you've got freedom, not using it to glorify or gratify your flesh. The opposite, you're going to replace that with service to others out of love, a love that God has given us a love that didn't exist there before. It's not a passionate love. It's not an emotional love. It's a love that makes a choice to do what's best for other people. We serve them so that we can show them who Christ is. But the false teachers, they were doing just that. They were using their freedom as an opportunity to indulge their flesh for the love of money, for the love of praise, for the love of immoral pleasures, they probably quoted Galatians 5.1 with great power among the new believers and new converts. They said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Can you hear him preaching that part? <laughs> Away with all these enslaving rules that govern the life of the body. You're not under the law. You're under grace. But I think they neglected those other parts of Paul's teachings that says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you'll put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In Romans 8, 13, if you're looking for that. So Peter takes this on, and he blasts a warning out here. He says, they're twisting the Scripture, and they're doing it to their own destruction. They promise freedom, but it's going to lead you to enslavement, which leads to corruption. And then he goes on in verse 20. He talks about storing up judgment. This is an important section for us to understand. It's a very decisive word of warning that rings out to us. He says, if you turn away from the holy commandments and forsake the way of righteousness and by your actions deny the master who bought you, as in verse 1, then you are not saved. Your condition is worse than when you never knew the way. It's important to understand what he's saying here. Peter's saying there's a real possibility in verse 20 that by learning about Christ, some people start a Christian life, as it were. And by all outward appearance, they have escaped the defilements of the world. 
But as they get going into it, the cares of the world, the riches of the world, the pleasures that are presented all around them in life, it chokes out this young faith, as it were. And it withers and it bears no fruit and it dies. Two things need to be stressed from these verses. You notice that the principle that the more you know of Christ and His way, the more severe will be your judgment for not trusting and obeying Christ. As Peter says, better to have not known than to know it and walk away from it. And in this, he preserves the teaching of Jesus from Matthew 11. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Here were cities that denied God and were involved in all kinds of immorality. They didn't have the truth as it were. And God destroyed them for their sin. But you have been given the truth. You've been given knowledge. And now you're walking away from it. It will be worse for you. The more evidence that you have of Christ's reality, the greater will be your judgment for not repenting. Luke 12 says, Everyone to whom much is given, of much will be required. And so he's warning new converts to say, if you forsake the way now, after all you have learned and experienced, your doom will be more miserable huh, than the pagans. I guess we could compare it to a doctor. This is the flu and the cold season, and you know, some of you are going and getting some uh, antibiotics, and the doctor says, here's your prescription. Take these for 10 days. I know you're going to feel pretty good after three or four or five days, but don't stop taking it until after the 10th day, because if you do, it's going to come back on you, right? You've all been there, right? The doctor says, you've got to take all of it. And you know that if you quit after the fifth day, it comes back, and you've got to start all over. If you stop trusting the heavenly doctor and you disobey his prescription for your redemption, the latter state will be worse than the former state. So the second point that needs to be stressed here is that Peter is not speaking, not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. Many will teach that from this passage. He is teaching that church members can be lost. Church members can become members without being saved because they can trick us. We're gullible. You give me a good story. Tell me you received Christ as your Savior. And we want to believe that, don't we? And we receive you into the fellowship and maybe there's never been a transformation that actually took place in your heart. And that's what he's talking about here. People can make outward professions of faith. They can even begin to clean up their lives, as it were, and they can turn away. But then there comes a point in life where they are enticed by the things of the world around them, and we find that they were never really saved. In verse 22, he explains to us in a proverb that we should not be over, overly surprised. And he uses the example of a couple of animals. He says a dog, characteristically, returns to its vomit. 
Say, come on, Peter, why, why would you share that in church? <laughs> and he goes on, he talks about pigs. You can clean them up, but it's the nature of the pig to go back to the mud, isn't it? That's just what they do because that's what they are. This pig is still a pig. Those who leave the way of righteousness never to return simply show that inside they had never been changed. And this was Peter's way of saying what I think 1 John 2.19 says. They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's so important to understand. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 says it this way, we share in Christ if we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast. The whole New Testament is agreed on this. There is no salvation apart from persevering faith. Persevering faith. Persevering faith always works itself out in the way of righteousness. So, to abandon the way of righteousness is to exclude oneself from salvation. But Peter's instruction to us here is this cannot happen to God's elect. Take encouragement in that. Why do I say that? Well, if I go back to verse 10 of chapter 1, it wouldn't make any sense. Peter says, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. Well, if my election, if the elect could be lost, there would be no advantage to confirm that I was elected. The point of verse 10 is that the elect will never fall, but they will enter into God's eternal kingdom. And therefore, we should be utterly earnest about confirming our election. And 2 Peter 2 was written to help us do that to help us confirm our election and warning us not to deny the master who bought us, to strengthen us, to resist temptation of the spirit and of pride and of self-sufficiency, to strengthen us against the love of money, of all these uh, destructive tendencies, and ultimately the summons of unbridled immoral license. This is not a chapter that's a lot of fun, is it? <laughs> but it's important for us to understand. Not all medicine tastes good, but we need to listen to the great physician. He knows our need, and every word is profitable to us. If it will cause us to increase our earnestness and realize the full assurance and the hope that God has given us, then Peter will have succeeded in our life. I hope that that is so for you and I. Peter's instruction doesn't deny your salvation. It just says confirm it. And the evidence of that will be that God is living out His life through you and you are continuing to be responsive to it. 
if you quit being responsive to it and you walk away never to come back, he says, then you weren't part of us. But those who know Christ and walk with Christ, the Spirit of God indwells with them and He will convict and He will draw you back. That's His promise to us. Father, I pray that You would take this teaching and instruction and make it practical to our hearts. May we, deny, may we not deny the Savior that bought us. May we confirm in our life, in our conduct, in our speech, in our very desires, confirm that, in fact, You have called us. And, Lord, if we have some question about that, if we've raised some concern, that's to our benefit, too, that we might make sure, even today, that we know You as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody in our midst this morning who has some doubt doesn't walk in full confidence that today would be the day that they would confirm that. For we know that that is your desire, that everyone would come to repentance and the knowledge and the love of our Savior. May they confess their sin, confess their unholiness to you, and acknowledge that you sent the Lord Jesus for their benefit to take upon His own body their sin, he paid the price on their behalf. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the hope and the confidence that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.